0: Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us here at the Hudson Institute. My name is Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow here at Hudson, and um, we have a very distinguished and interesting panel, and I gather from, uh, from the size of our audience that it is extremely interesting. It's a very nice-sized audience. Thank you all for coming and uh, spending the afternoon with us. The name of the panel is The Future of North Africa, Reports from Libya, Tunisia, and Morocco. And our panelist uh, this afternoon will be Sarah Foyer from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, uh, and Sarah uh, is a specialist in North Africa. Uh, to her right is uh, a colleague of mine, Eric Brown, here at the Hudson Institute, who has uh, been visiting the region recently and will have reports from it, as does uh, as does Sam Tadros, to his right, another colleague here at Hudson. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful panel, and um, I'm sure that uh, we're all I, I certainly look forward to, uh, to being informed by all of them, and I'm sure you do, too. Thank you very kindly again for being here. And uh, Eric, if you'd like to start us off.
1: Yeah, terrific. Thank you, Lee, and thank you all for joining us today. Um, I am not, uh, nor do I claim to have any deep expertise on North Africa, but uh, I do think as a region it's received uh, short shrift uh, here in Washington policy discussions, and certainly in Washington policy. And I think that that is changing, and I think that the U.S. needs to take a much, much more expansive uh, vision of its interests, uh, not just in North Africa, but across the region. And the reason for that is that um, we're obviously, in my view, we're witnessing a historical convulsion uh, which shows no sign of of, of ending anytime soon uh, across the region and uh, the, it essentially has involved uh, the implosion of the state-based order, the unraveling, or the flattening of it in certain areas. The epicenter of that, as we see, is in the greater Levant. But as we see, no state in the wider Middle East has been left untouched by this unraveling, uh, and it's spreading. Uh, it's an opportunistic sort of set of forces and dynamics which are spreading. They're obviously affecting North Africa in deep ways, Uh, and it matters um, to uh, U.S. interests and to the security of our allies uh, to figure out how to arrest and to reverse this implosion of political order. Um, uh, I think that, you know, historically, we've tended to think about North Africa uh, as being existing more or less under the shadow of Europe. um, And uh, um, and so it's very difficult to explain to a Washington audience on the Hill and in other places why uh, we should care about uh, North Africa, particularly at a time when our core interests are threatened in other parts of the Middle East, and of course we're heavily engaged there and likely going to become more engaged there, I think, because of uh, the deteriorating security situation in the Gulf and in other places. Um, uh, but. I, I think, um, you know, when you try to come up with a reason here in Washington about why North Africa should matter to the United States, um, I'm sort of an old-fashioned person in the sense that I'm a globalist and I think it matters because these are countries with lots of people, uh, and, uh, they're, they're significant in and of themselves. But increasingly people are saying, well, that's not sufficient reason for the United States to take an active interest in, in, in the region. In fact, people are saying that our new politics should be defined more narrowly by patriotism and not by globalism or international interests. Another uh, argument is that, well, North Africa matters because Europe matters. And I'm uh, also persuaded by that argument. But it's increasingly a difficult argument to make when Europe isn't taking an active interest in its own self-defense and its own security. And uh, I still do think that Europe matters geopolitically for the United States. And for that reason, we have to accept the fact that North Africa, or the Southern Mediterranean as a whole, exists on a security continuum with, with Europe. No matter how much Western policymakers have attempted to try to keep the two apart, the liberal peace that Europe has enjoyed for the last 25 years is deeply threatened by the unraveling and implosion of political order that we're seeing Uh, in the region. Unfortunately, um, I think we've seen a general turn inward in Europe, um, and people have begun to talk about the unraveling in the region, mostly in terms of their domestic politics, which on some level is understandable. But I think when you refer to Europe's migration crisis, it's a mischaracterization of the problem. Europe is facing not a migration crisis simply, but rather uh, the region next door is imploding. And if the transatlantic alliance is going to have any relevance in the 21st century, it needs to make itself relevant and figure out how to invent the capabilities and tools to be able to deal with this unraveling, which we're seeing. I do think as well North Africa matters because as we're seeing the sort of debunking of the regional order, uh, North Africa contains within it the possible seeds of, of what could constitute or help us think about the potential rebunking of a regional order. In fact, um, while we're seeing um, uh, the unraveling spread uh, across a number of vulnerable countries uh, from Libya, potentially Algeria, and also in Egypt, um, Uh, We're seeing uh, in Tunisia the only Arabic-speaking country to emerge from the Arab Spring, uh, making a a real effort to form itself on a secure political basis and to emerge as a modern republic. At least in classical, traditional republican theory, as it was rediscovered in the 16th century and the 17th century, uh, there was a theory that republics uh, uh, were more secure when they took an active interest in helping other republics secure themselves. And I think if you uh, uh, measure or, or, or evaluate American and the European response more broadly to Tunisia since 2011, uh, I think, well, I personally view, view it as being quite anemic and tepid, and I think that uh, Tunisia certainly deserves a much, much more robust effort on the part of the West to help shore it up politically, economically, and socially so that it can withstand the unraveling, that the countries in the region are facing, and that so it could potentially emerge as a real model for other aspiring Republicans across the region. Uh, Morocco as well, um, uh, obviously, is pursuing a very different path of political development. It's a different society, um, but if you're looking across the Middle East for a comprehensive countering violent extremism strategy, one cannot um, find uh, a country that has pursued a policy that's more comprehensive than the Kingdom of Morocco, which of course has made real efforts to counter um, radical ideology, not just through the invention of soft power institutions, uh, which are aimed explicitly at uh, destroying or deconstructing the ideology of ISIS and other sorts of predatory groups. But the country, uh, the kingdom, has also taken, um, through the new social contract which, it, which the king had formed um, uh, after the, the, the 2010 and 2011 unrests in the kingdom, um, the country has also pursued a very progressive effort to fight uh, corruption – Uh, To establish rule of law, to implement security sector reforms, to uh, improve the police, and to ensure that the police serve the interests of the public. In effect, what the what the government in Morocco has really attempted to do is to find the chinks in its governing in in its in its armor, and to really try to figure out how to close those close the doors that predatory groups in the region have managed to use in order to uh, 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 pursue their own uh, ideological strategic agendas of destabilizing the region. So Morocco, again, is another country that that really desperately deserves our support. Looking a bit over the horizon, uh, I think that Morocco and Tunisia uh, do um, deserve our support as well because of the continuing implosion in Libya. It is, as you all know, a very sad situation. People in the region will point to the fact that, well, certain factions in Libya have been fighting for for years, and in some respects uh, what we're seeing today is no different from historical patterns of fighting between different factions and tribes. But the the reality is, of course, as we know, Libya uh, and the sad situation there is is in fact uh, also very different, because we have now... Um, a threat in the form of ISIS, which harks back to the old sorts of threats, like the Vandals who had succeeded in flattening the political order across North Africa at a time when the political order had grown weak. Um, and now, as we know, uh, ISIS is taking real advantage in Libya um, to spread uh, across North Africa. And so we have to take that very seriously. The other thing is, of course, is that ISIS, uh, uh, or rather Libya, just like Syria, is not just a function of private, intra-Libyan sorts of conflicts between different warring factions, but it's very much become, the conflict there has very much also become a function of the geopolitical quarrels, which are ripping apart other countries in the region, including Syria and Iraq and in other places. And so, no matter how much North Africa and North Africans would like uh, to think of themselves as separate from the Middle East, um, the Middle East is very interested in North Africa, and uh, they can't entirely be separated um, uh, from the, the, the deepening uh, crisis which we're seeing in the Greater Levant. Um, I'll also just say one thing before I can pass this over to Sarah. Um A lot of folks uh, in Morocco and Egypt and also in Tunisia are deeply concerned about the situation in Algeria. I know that that's on a lot of people's radars right here, but the rule of Bouteflika is coming to an end. We're seeing evidence of a very uh, significant power struggle going on between different factions in the military and the intelligence. Uh, A lot of people uh, do not expect that the uh, country will return to the so-called black decade of the 1990s and to the level and intensity of violence that we saw during that period. Um, However, a lot of people also point out to the fact that the vast majority of Algerians today were in fact not alive during the 1990s, and so they don't actually remember what that fighting was all about or what the actual consequences for Algerian society was. And so the sort of sobriety and uh, political uh, political sobriety which had shaped the peace in Algeria uh, after the 1990s is, is beginning to be tested right now at a time when um, uh, when a lot of external forces are conspiring to threaten Algeria. And uh, um, it's uh, something that we need to get ahead of, I think. And one of the ways in which we should think about getting ahead of this, is by making serious investments in those potential uh, sources of self-sustaining strength in North Africa, and that, are, uh, that happens to be responsible regimes, uh, such as Morocco and Tunisia. And it is from responsible regimes, responsible politics and good governance, that, that security and the reconstitution of a broken order uh, will take place um, and I think we need to think a lot more strategically about the aid that we give to these countries not just our security or military assistance but also need to think in terms of revamping our political and economic assistance to these vulnerable countries so thank you I
0: look forward to thanks that's adding credit. more about this uh, thanks and, and I was just going to say you brought up something um glad you ta- you mentioned Algeria and that's something that maybe we can um we can touch on as we uh, get in- to uh, more of our conversation is is north africa is the region that we're talking about is it a is it a region itself is it a network where different actors or how do different actors affect each other i know of course the moroccans uh, are and have been and perhaps will be for a long time in the future extremely concerned about algeria Uh, how does that touch also on what happens in tunisia uh, Tunisia and, and Libya as well. So thanks very much. The other thing I, I, I think I want to come back to is talking about the uh, Morocco's efforts on countering violent extremism, which is very interesting. So maybe we can throw a little more detail on that later. Um, Sarah, I believe that um, – and, and you mentioned this a bit, Eric – but I believe that you just wrote a piece for foreign affairs on some of what's happening in Tunisia with, uh, with the Ganushi's transformation, which is very interesting, and you don't have to touch on that there, but I just want to recommend that article. It's in Foreign Affairs, correct? Is that right? Yes, yeah, fan- I need him to yeah. say that. No, no, no. It's a wonderful, wonderful, very valuable, really interesting article, uh, and it's a very important, uh, very important, uh, very important development in North Africa. And if you don't touch it on the introduction, then we'll come back around to it later. But again, it's a wonderful piece. So thanks very much, and and uh, welcome again. Thanks.
2: Thank you for having me here. Um, I've followed the. Uh, Scholarship and analysis out of Hudson for a little while now, but so it's a real privilege to be um, up here with um, with you all. Um, so uh, I was I was thinking about this that in in a sense, I mean the the Maghreb, n- North and Northwest Africa. Um, I think as Eric pointed out, they don't doesn't get a, a lot of attention um, in Washington. But actually, in one sense, um, e- each of these four states represents one of the, the variety of trajectories that Arab states have traveled down since the uprisings uh, in 2011. So you have Libya, uh, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say a failed state by now, um, in disarray, civil war, essentially. Um, tiny Tunisia, um, hanging in there, and really the only uh, ostensibly democratic uh, state to emerge. It's uh, it's bumpy and it's um, precarious and I'll come back to some of the challenges that I think um, uh, Tunisia's going to continue to need our, uh, need our help on. Um, moving further west, Algeria um, kind of seems to have emerged from at least this round um, solid, if not a bit sclerotic, uh, difficult to read from the outside and um, and uh, and and rather closed. Um, and finally, Morocco, which uh, did have its own variant of a, of a spring, it was relatively tame, but um, came out of it essentially, I think, pursuing the, what you know the Moroccan sort of tried and true um, preference for very gradual um, uh, type of reform, type of reform, um, and so. I, I was thinking, if uh, you know, in political science uh, courses, people like to talk about you know finding variation in outcomes, and that's how you can build a nice little research study. Well, these four states are kind of ready-made case studies for um, for any aspiring doctoral student out there. Anyway, um, I'll just touch on a few of the um, main challenges that I, I see in in these countries, and. Um, I should say, uh, I really have tended to focus mostly on Tunisia and Morocco. Um, so I'm going to break with Washington protocol and try to avoid speaking about that, which I do not know much about. But um, yeah, that, 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 that I sounds, will say...
0: This sounds terrible. <laughs> right. I'm cutting you off right now. Um,
2: but I, I will try to just um, offer a few uh, comments on, on on Libya and Algeria along the way. Um, so I think that... Uh, you know, for the for for the remainder of this administration, and certainly for an incoming uh, American administration, um, if, if somebody's going to come in and look at this region, um, I, I it seems to me that the the kind of number one priority um, is how to how to cauterize Libya, basically. I mean, how to prevent um, the the horrible state of affairs in Libya um, from just completely kind of overrunning, uh, things to its west. Um, I mean, each of these states in, in its own way has been affected by, by the war in Libya. Um, the last couple of times that I've traveled to Tunisia, it's, it's very often the first thing that, that people certainly in, in government and, and even out of government that Tunisians, um, seem deeply concerned about. Um, and I think Tunisia is probably the most vulnerable of these states to, to what has been going on in Libya. So how to, how to try and um, prevent more uh, spillover of the Libyan conflict, I think would rank um, pretty high up there. Um, I'm going to leave Libya for a moment um, and turn to Tunisia. Um, Here, I think the the main challenge, it's going to sound perhaps obvious, but how to preserve the the democratic gains that that Tunisia has made over these last few years, um, while also trying to attend to a, a pretty serious um, internal security problem um, I mean I think even if the Libyan disaster were miraculously solved tomorrow um, Tunisia would still uh, have to you know they have a they have a jihadism problem on their hands at home and I think that they're they I mean they are beyond very well aware of this but they are just now I think starting to try and develop um, a, more of a comprehensive strategy for dealing with this and um, and I think that they would welcome um, they would welcome assistance in that um, and uh, just a final thing I'll mention in Tunisia um, is of course the, the question of the economy I mean we like to sort of separate these issues I think it, it can make sense for analytical purposes to talk about, you know, political challenges, security challenges, economic challenges. Of course, on the ground, everything is related. So the, you know, Tunisia's economy um, is, is struggling mightily, well, in, in part because the tourism industry has taken such a hit due to some of these security incidents. So um, it, on the ground, things are, of course, um, much more interrelated. Um, but the, the point I just want to stress here is that um, Tunisia on its own needs to um, deal with an extremism problem at home. Um, and the, 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 the latest and most sort of um, striking example of this was the the, the attack in Ben Gardin in, in March of this year. The 50 or 60 guys who, who almost managed to essentially take over this town, um, they were Tunisians. Um, some of them, it seems, had gone over to Libya and maybe come back. But the point is that... Um, the, the security concerns are going are going to be here for a while in Tunisia. Um, I'll say one one thing about Algeria again, I'm not an Algeria expert. I, there are there are a few actually I've spotted in the audience and, and I'm hoping they can um, maybe enlighten us a bit more because this is a country that at least in Washington we really don't um, We don't hear enough about it it's, it seems impervious um, And I think the conversation in Washington tends to focus on this succession uh, you know what's going to happen on Bouteflika eventually passes um, and sure I mean it's possible that that his uh, that his passing will you know lead to some sort of chaotic situation um, I I am a bit skeptical of the the um, sort of alarmism over his um, over the succession I, I kind of assume that the people who are in charge I mean that this sort of small group of people who are making decisions um, behind sealed doors um, have kind of got it figured out. I mean, chances are they will find a way to manage this. Um, It's not going to happen democratically. It's not going to, I mean, I don't think we should have any illusions about that. But um, at least as a sort of outside observer, I I think a a potentially more worrisome um, set of developments has has to do with Algeria's economy. Um, Algeria... Uh, as, as some of you probably know, relies a lot on the uh, export of hydrocarbons, oil and gas, um, and of course, with the drop in in, in uh, oil prices, um, the the state has taken a hit, and so um, it's had to ri- raise prices on um, you know things like fuel and and electricity. So I think it's if if there is going to be. Any real unrest in Algeria? Um, chances are, it's it's going to be as a in a form of a, a backlash to some of the uh, measures that the state may be forced to take to to deal with some of these economic problems. Because right now, it doesn't really seem there doesn't seem to be there's not much evidence that that the that the regime is. Kind of thinking long term and strategically about how to diversify this economy. So um, I, I think perhaps even more than succession, the, the, the economic question in Algeria may, may prove to be um, really the, the daunting one. Um, and finally, uh, there's Morocco um, and um, I, I mean Eric you know raised some really good points about about Morocco. I, I don't have too much to, to add. I mean for the moment, uh, the, the, the stability of the kingdom seems fairly durable. I mean, you know, this is famous last words, though, in this region. But um, I, I think, you know, especially because the, there is a, a demonstration effect. I mean, uh, I think there are very few Moroccans, and, and maybe this goes to other countries as well, who want to risk going the way of, I don't know, um, well, you pick a country uh, in the region, and so so that demonstration effect I think will linger for for a little while longer. Um, and you know, the Moroccan uh, th- they did go through, as I mentioned, uh, uh, a kind of um, mild spring. Um, they do have a new constitution um, that expanded a, a little bit, at least the, the the legislative purview of their parliament, for example. Um, and um, and you you have now enshrined a, a much longer list of human rights uh, in Morocco um, on paper, um, and um, and at the same time that you know I, it's no secret really that the the king retains authority in in some very um, important portfolios, um, national security, defense, religious affairs, which gets to this question of CVE, which maybe we can return to, um, and. Um, When I have when I have traveled to Morocco over the last few years, I've I'm I'm often struck like you know the the local newspapers will run almost every day. There is a picture of the king cutting a ribbon, uh, you know, sort of inaugurating some large scale, usually infrastructure related project. Um, There's a beautiful, uh, not so new anymore, but relatively new tramway, a, a, a train in Rabat. That um, people can take makes our metro system look. Well, that's not saying much anymore these days. But um, so there are some. I mean, from a development standpoint, you know, these projects um, certainly have have contributed to some economic growth. Um, but at the same time, um, you know the. There is always this this question of, of you know a third of the a third of the Moroccan population is still illiterate. Um, and um, you know, you have conversations with um, people who work, for example, at USAID uh, in, in Rabat who will tell you that the, the kingdom has done a, a really remarkable job the last fifteen years of increasing access to schools. I mean, just getting to a point where kids have a school to go to. Um, and, uh, especially for, for, for girls in rural areas, this is unquestionably, this is an achievement. Um, now we have to turn to what's happening inside the schools, um, and, you know, what the kids are learning and, and not learning. So it's, it's the, for the moment, I think the, the kingdom is, um, proceeding on this bet, essentially, that, um, a kind of gradual approach, um, where you don't rock the boat too much and risk, Kind of upheaval that can come with pretty dramatic change um, will be sufficient to uh, respond to the demands of um, at least pockets of the population that really are eager for um, I think some um, some deeper change uh, if if not politically at least um, certainly economically so um, so I think that that by extension the challenge for the U.S. Uh, administration whichever that one that might be um, is to to try and Try and help the kingdom continue on this reform process and, and stay true to what it has committed itself um, to doing, at the very least. So I'll stop there. That's terrific. Thanks very
0: kindly, Sarah. Um, and one of the things that, that you touched on, which I'll, I'll want to come back around to, is this um, peculiar paradox, uh, or it seems like a paradox, where Tunisia, uh, if it's making so many political advances... And you have Ghanoushi talking about bending political Islam on behalf of Muslim democracy. Why does it also have, at the same time, an extremism problem, as you said? Why does Tunisia seem to export, or not seem, why does it, in fact, export so many fighters uh, to the Syrian conflict? And, of course, before that, a decade ago, it exported a lot of fighters when the United States was was in Iraq. So um, thanks very much again. We'll, we'll come back around to all of that, I hope. Uh, now I want to introduce my colleague uh, and friend, Sam, uh, Sam Tajos. Sam, uh, we first met many years ago. Um, and uh, Sam is uh, – when he was visiting from Egypt, and now he's here. And Sam I've always found to be um, absolutely the sharpest, uh, most acute uh, analyst of Egypt uh, and many other things So I've learned so much from him in the past. And uh, Sam, I
3: thank you uh, for being on the panel. Uh, so if you would take it away. Well, thanks for the introduction. But, uh, uh, well, I'm not the most uh, acute or knowledgeable person about uh, Tunisia, Morocco, or, or any I, I, of these I said you are on many but, things. Uh, but, uh, but I'll try to offer some remarks uh, on these countries. Um, I think when the Arab Spring began, there's um, – All those hopes that uh, people had about it um, met obviously with frustrations, the reality of what happened in many of these countries. Um, Civil war, the military takeover in Egypt, and all of these countries we haven't seen any positive outcome. It's understandable why thus Tunisia would seem like a beacon of hope for everyone. Uh, it's a perfect case. Uh, the country had, yes, not a very, um, a bit of a rocky transition, but it managed through. Um, the parties worked together. Um, it had elections, repeated one, parliamentary, presidential And, of course, it was rewarded for that with a Nobel Peace Prize. And everyone is happy celebrating Tunisia, and let's look somewhere else. The reality has been quite different. The country is often portrayed as the most homogeneous country in the region, Um, large middle class, well-educated, military is not involved in politics, all the necessary ingredients to create a stable democratic transition. Tunisia is facing real trouble. Uh, yes, the country is a majority Arab um, Sunni Muslim population, but there are serious divides within society, both in terms of the secular Islamist divide, as well as the geographic one between the the um, coastal areas and between the countryside, the, the interior uh, desert regions of the country. Uh, that divide, I mean, you look at the results of the parliamentary or the presidential elections, and it's basically that divide that you see. Um, and that divide continues. The interior region of the country has been neglected for so long. There are historical reasons why this has been uh, there. But really, the Ben Ali regime has paid little attention to that region. Uh, No infrastructure, uh, basic services are uh, not the best in this area. And people in this area really feel neglected by the, the government, the central government. The second comment I'd make is about the the focus on the political transition in Tunisia uh, has led Tunisian politicians to ignore the most pressing issue, i.e. the economy. People rose, they brought down the regime because they had economic demands. They had the demands regarding uh, jobs, regarding their, their well-being. And the focus on this identity politics, this divide between seculars and Islamists, I'm not saying it's not important, but the result has been that no one has paid any attention to the serious economic problems that the country has. Um, the Ben Ali regime was a mafia that ran, uh, divided the economy into various monopolies for his family, for his wife's family, and these monopolies have not been destroyed. Um, we don't have a serious free market discourse or policies in Tunisia. The result has been the continuation of economic structure that closes any opportunity for young Tunisians. Uh, people point out to the uh, good educational system Tunisia has. Well, that educational system is now a curse. You go to Tunisia, you, you find, where do you find the youth of Tunisia? Sitting in cafes, smoking the shisha. That's how they spend their day. There's no opportunity for them. And that high expectations of the revolution and then the frustrations of nothing is actually improving is obviously creating opportunities for challenges to the status quo. The most obvious one is the Islamic State. The Islamic State, unlike previous jihadi challenges that we have faced, is uh, not just a hit-and-run organization. They actually have a political project. They have a project of holding territory, providing services, not very, the best of services, but they're providing something. So in regions where the the central government has really ignored that place, and when there are deep, these deep frustrations, it's not surprising that the Islamic State would find a, a very suitable ground to to grow there. Um, Tunisians often think of um, the challenge as emerging from Libya. And Libya does loom large on the problem in Tunisia, not just as a security threat, but as an economic one as well. There are more than 1 million Libyans living in Tunisia. That's about 10% of the population. This is a serious number. It means pressure on jobs. It means pressure on services, on the educational system. Libyan students go to the same schools and are sponsored by the Tunisian states. And all that pressure on the government services is also impacting the lives of Tunisians. Also, that numbers is creating a huge housing crisis in the country where Tunisians are unable to afford buying houses or renting them because of the higher demand coming from the Libyans. Um, but that, all these problems, also there's a, the, the outside of Libya and of the economy and of mistrust, I also want to talk about the a bit about the U.S. and about the other competitors of the U.S. in the region. The U.S. is not present in Tunisia, in Morocco, in any of these countries. Um, neither, I mean, my colleagues have pointed out that the, these countries are not present in the debate in Washington. Neither is the U.S. doing anything there. Um, we visited during – Eric and I took a trip to Tunisia and Morocco about a couple of months ago. We visited uh, organizations receiving U.S. aid. We've talked to the activists there, and it's a very frustrating picture there. Uh, uh, U.S. aid, MEPI, and these uh, uh, government agencies – uh, come to the country, they throw the money, they have $15 million to spend on democracy promotion in Tunisia, and they create all those civil society organizations, and then they leave, and the civil society closes in that country. Um, in Morocco, we had a lecture by Trotskite activists who are receiving U.S. funding about how Israel is trying to divide the whole region and the whole Arab Spring is uh, an Israeli plan and blah, 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 you know, the rhetoric. Um, there's a serious lack of engagement by the US. Um, The embassies are not doing enough in cultural outreach. I mean, I'm I'm Egyptian by nationality. My parents, if you look at their, their libraries, you can find the books that the US was producing in the 1940s and 50s, reaching out to the people in the region. You talk today, where's the American cultural attaché in those countries? Non-existent. If you compare that to what our adversaries are doing, then you get a serious problem. Um, it was really surprising when you go to these countries and you see what Iran is doing, for example. We tend to think of Iran as a power that's only focused on the Levant and the Gulf, where there are Shia minorities that they can exploit, work with, and so on. The reality has been that they have a serious strategy of infiltration in the countries that we visited in North Africa. This is both cultural, um, I mean, the cultural, uh, Iranian cultural attaché in um, in Tunis was described to for example, as the most well-connected person in the country. Every day the Iranian cultural center is holding events. Scholars, especially from the religious establishment, are being invited to attend conferences in Iran. There's a serious ground game engagement there. And this is all outside of the typical talk in Sunni circles about um, Iranian attempts to conversion to Shiism, which some of it is true, and all of Uh, that they are doing there. So we're seeing a a region that is facing serious challenges. We're seeing a US that is not um, actively engaged at all in the future of these countries. And um, we're seeing Iranian um, and other obviously adversaries, the Islamic State and others, attempts to infiltrate and destabilize these countries. I'll say a a few words about Morocco. Every government official, person you meet in Morocco, there's a deep frustration with the United States. Uh, Morocco has been an ally of the United States for, well, since the, uh, the beginning they're of they're the oldest, the, old, yeah. the oldest, in a sense, country to recognize the United States, and they're very proud of that history. They feel neglected by the United States. They feel mm-hmm. that they're taken often for granted. And there's a deep worry in Morocco about uh, that the U.S. will be shifting towards Algeria because of oil interests. Um, they they assume the U.S. policy is driven solely by the oil interests and that this will eventually mean that the U.S. will choose Algeria over them. And make no mistake, that's the kind of um, polar opposites that are, are offered in the minds of Moroccans. Moroccan and Algeria are really engaged in a in a long struggle it it was military for a while but there's a there 's a deep struggle between these two countries and the Western policy is viewed through that struggle it 's also through that um, frustration with the u s that they view the repeated talks in the United States about the Western Sahara and about how to deal with the Western Sahara. And that's a problem we need to understand as we're engaging with these countries. Um, we come, there's a, there are uh, issues there that we need to understand. When when Secretary Kerry raises the issue of the Sahara, how is this perceived in Morocco? For example, how does it impact the relationship? So that... Uh, let me
0: stop here. Okay, that's <laughs> terrific. I, I do want to come back to some of the Western Sahara stuff, because in, in a sense, in a sense, that is kind of what holds together, um, what holds the Maghreb together as a region, and to hear different Moroccans describe it, it's also what's um, preventing it from being a more, a more coherent region, a more coherent trade block. Um, it, it struck me as interesting what you said about the Moroccans' perception that will the Americans choose the Algerians, and it might have something to do with energy, but also, my sense is, the general, um, the general picture from the region is that the U.S. is tossing over a whole bunch of traditional allies, whether this has been Saudi Arabia or whether it's been Turkey or whether it's been Israel, downgrading all of them and upgrading, upgrading Iran. Um, so it certainly makes sense that, that, that they would uh, adopt, that, adopt that picture in a similar way. Um, so, and, and I want to come back and talk about the Iran stuff later. The, the one thing, I, the the first thing I want to ask right now is, Eric, you, you, you mentioned this a bit before, talking about talking about Europe, why North Africa is perceived to be a European issue. So I want to move that aside a little bit, and this will also come into some of the extremism. I myself am just coming back from France, where of course, you know, people are extremely concerned. why, why does it seem that uh, a lot of North Africa Exports many of its problems, uh, and why is this a major why is this a major European concern, and why should it be one of our concerns that they are exporting some of their problems, and how do we help them manage some of these? Uh, Eric, if you can start off, then I'll I'll, I'll reach them for each for for each, but Eric, if you wouldn't mind starting off.
1: Well, I think that North Africa should be, uh, and the stability and prosperity of North Africa should be a European concern. And historically, it has been. And historically, if you will, the United States has outsourced our North Africa policy to Paris and to Brussels and to other um, European capitals. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily served North Africans very well, uh, number one. And number two, uh, right now, we're looking at a situation in Europe where, as I mentioned earlier, they've gone politically wobbly for a variety of different reasons. Their politics are increasingly focused inward because of a rolling political crisis at home. And Europe is in the business of throwing up walls between it and the Middle East. And I don't actually think those walls are going to be very effective over the long range. They they are sort of short-term stopgaps to separate Europe from the spreading crisis in the Middle East. But they don't go to the core of the problem, and that is this political crisis, which we're seeing spread and and taking hostages across the Middle East. And so for that reason, I do think that the United States, insofar as we understand our interests broadly in the Middle East as being uh, locked up with uh, or entwined with what the actual outcome of this rolling political and ideological competition in the region. And insofar as we also see Europe as mattering to us geopolitically, we need to take a much, much more active interest in North Africa and not continue to rely on the habit of outsourcing this to the Europeans. That said, I do think that North Africa is properly a region that should be approached from the perspective of the transatlantic alliance. And as I mentioned earlier, if the transatlantic alliance is going to have any relevance in the 21st century, uh, it obviously has discrete military threats in the form of uh, Putin uh, and Russia, but um, it has another kind of competition or struggle that it has to develop the, the capabilities to be able to respond to. And North Africa, I think, should be the focus of that alliance, if it's going to make itself relevant.
0: Um. Um, Sarah, I, I guess if we, if we can come come back right now to why there seems to be um, and I'm going to promote your, your excellent article again, but it, why there does seem to be uh, why there does seem to be a paradox why Tunisia seems to be moving politically uh, uh, marching toward democracy, even the Islamist movement, the main Islamist movement while there is while there is an extremist problem how How, how do we understand this
2: uh, well um complicated
0: <laughs> um, I, I guess I'm, uh, l- l- allow me just to, to reframe it I guess what I'm trying to get at is it, it is it is a major concern for lots of people the security issues that we feel uh, w- and which of course you said all these things are tied together but I think that this is one of the things right now that when people look both to the region and when people look to uh, Europe they see security security issues are one of their first concerns. Regarding North Africa, so so that I just wanted to move that frame over a little bit and put it like that.
2: Okay. Well, um, I think that um, I mean I think we're starting to get a better understanding of why there has been this sort of tale of two Tunisia's. Hmm. Um, I think to some extent um, this has to do with a a misreading of actually of Tunisia before 2011. Um, I mean. At least in the West, I think, and I think for, I mean, if I can be so bold, for uh, a a good chunk of secular Tunisian um, elites, basically, there was this view that their country was, um, you know, strong middle class, well educated, women were, um, had really achieved a a level of um, empowerment, I suppose, um, unmatched in the region. And so, after 2011, the emergence of uh, of extremist groups against the, the backdrop of, of of liberalization, of political liberalization, not not repression, um, I think really puzzled a lot of people. Um, I think part of the answer is that that initial view of where, where Tunisia was before the uprising was not totally flawed, but I think just incomplete. I mean. Um, and actually, Sam touched on the, 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 differences between, um, you know, the coastal areas around Tunis, where there are a lot of middle class Tunisians who have, you know, decent jobs, and, um, the education system in Tunisia did consistently rank among the most, uh, you know, among the high, highest level in, in the region. These, these Arab development reports, or whatever they're called. I mean, there, there was a basis for that perception, but, um, but it didn't really take into account, um, first of all, what happened when you left the coastal uh, parts of, of, of the country, um, and also the extent to which, um, you know, under Ben Ali, the, the, the country basically became a police state. I mean, so, um, you know, if you look at the sort of proximate causes of, of, of extremism in Tunisia post-spring, you can point to things, the the amnesty that you know released a lot of um, political prisoners, many of whom had been thrown in jail, um, not because they were extremists, but because they just didn't like the you know they didn't like Ben Ali. So, um, but some of whom had been pretty hardened, um, you know, uh, radical, you know, nutcases, and they were they were released. Um, but I think that the 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 uh, the reason that. That these groups were able to really implant themselves in Tunisia has much more to do with the, the first part of my answer, which is to say that there are a lot of areas in Tunisia where the state actually was pretty absent, um, and that was another, I think, mis, misperception among some Tunisia observers. Um, but you, you know, you had a lot of areas where um, where the state, except for you know monitoring the local mosque, you know having security, uh, the security the internal security services monitor the, the local mosque, the state really wasn't providing basic services that we tend to associate with you know hospitals, medical care, even 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 schooling I mean in some in some areas. So that's uh, you know that scenario is ripe for um, groups to um, come in and, and start to offer not just, you know, uh, prescription sheets that you can take to your local pharmacy with Ansar Sharia, you know, listed on the, on the bottom, a nice little logo there, but also some, you know, indoctrination to go with that. Um, so I think it's, a, uh, it, it's now what has happened since the, the, the uprising. Um, you know, you do have this interesting situation where the, the political process, um, has more or less proceeded, um, you know, in, in in a generally good direction. Um, I think some of this. There's no question that the Islamist party in Tunisia deserves um, a good chunk of the credit for this, for having made some very, you know, swallowed some very difficult um, decisions along the way, um, and and also there were there were compromises that 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 some of the secular types made. Um, and um, but I think by that point. Things may, it may have just been a little bit too late. Um, and, um, and I think there are differences in how the various political strains in Tunisia think about the extremism problem. And so there, it's been hard to get the groups, you know, it's been hard to get some consensus on, for example, you know, questions like how much should we really be monitoring mosques now? How much, you know, we want to be able to give Tunisians the freedom to, 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 to worship and do what for a long time a lot of them couldn't do. Um, and on the other hand, we don't want these—we um, don't want places to become just, you know, kind of uh, it open season for 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 crazy types to to, to spout whatever they want to spout. So there's a there's a debate, um, and and it's a it's a messy one. But you know, democracy is messy. I mean, nobody ever claimed <laughs> otherwise. So uh,
0: Eric, I believe that you wanted to you wanted to add something.
2: Yeah, to
1: just a note to about you know, Tunisia. I mean, there is a, a deep sense, especially amongst the young in Tunisia. Um, that their transition, if you will, to becoming a fully-fledged and viable republic has been suspended. Uh, And that suspension is a function of a variety of different things. It's not a function of disagreement among uh, leaders on both sides, on all sides of the Tunisian sort of body politic about what they want and what they think is necessary. I think everybody understands the importance of reforming the cops. Everybody understands the importance of deregulation. Everybody understands the importance of opening Tunisia up for a business and investment. It's, it's In Tunisia, the future is not the difficult part. It's actually the past um, and overcoming uh, the legacy of the Ben Ali regime. We haven't, uh, uh, have I don't think here in Washington, there's been a real full appreciation of just exactly how Ben Ali ruled. He was much more of a Saddam Hussein than a Mubarak. He was not... Uh, An administrator, but a tyrant uh, who brutally tyrannized over the Tunisian people and and took their money and took their wealth uh, for the sole purpose of aggrandizing himself and the ruling faction. Um, And Tunisia is still dealing with the legacy uh, uh, that Ben Ali had bequeathed to them. Um, and that means that they're dealing with broken institutions or ill-formed institutions, number one, but they're also dealing uh, on all sides with a deep problem of societal mistrust. And it's actually the mistrust amongst the factions which has contributed to a failure of politics to actually push through the important uh, kinds of reforms that, the, that Tunisian, Tunisia needs in order to, to, to become viable. Um, uh, we've spoken to, uh, for example, secular intellectuals, among other things, who referred to Inada as animals. Uh, we spoke to Inada, uh, some, well, some others who are more aligned with Inada who saw in the labor unions uh, potential proxies for the French Ministry of Defense. Um, there are views on all sides about how the other side is supported by some sort of nefarious outside actor and is seeking to do them harm. Um, uh, this is uh, part of the legacy of Ben Ali, and it's going to take a lot of time to work through. And uh, I think, because of the fragility of their politics, uh, uh, I think again the U.S. and other countries need to think about what it needs to create a uh, more of a
0: safe space, if you will, for them to be able to work through these, uh, these, uh, this legacy and these issues. So. Um. Sam, I want to ask you. I, I think it may have been uh, it wasn't you who mentioned this. It was either Eric or Sarah. I'm always saying that the Tunisians are very. Uh, they look at Libya and they say it's a big problem. I want to ask uh, you a quick question. Do they um, do they believe the Americans are responsible for addressing those issues? First of all, and then second of all, second of all, how do you how do you fix what seems like a uh, if not a broken but certainly a damaged polity in Tunisia, because of what Eric was saying, and where does the United States step in, instead of, instead of backing uh, or instead of funding, uh, funding Trotskyists to give addresses on how the Israelis are really the reason that uh, the Maghreb is, fall, is falling to pieces.
3: I think uh, the position on Libya um, is a reflection of their position on their internal politics. So if you talk to more Tunisian seculars, the answer is that the only solution in Libya is a military one. Um, The the Islamists there have to be crushed militarily. Their position is not that dissimilar to that of the United Arab Emirates, to that of Egypt, for example, which is dealing with the Libyan problem from the other side of of the border. if you're talking to Islamists, they tend to blame. No, it's the Qaddafi networks. It's the they're the ones that are destabilizing Libya, and Libya needs a political solution to its problem. So I think the 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 answer in Tunisia on how to deal with Libya is really a reflection of their own divides inside the country. Um, I want to say something about this mistrust and and this divide in the country, uh, for going to to how can we fix yeah, yeah, it. Um, Ben Ali came from the, I mean, he was militarily, but really rose in the the security sector within the military. And like the other Arab dictators, his greatest worry was how to make sure that no one does what he did, i.e. a coup. That, uh, yes, it was a medical coup, they declared Bourguiba to be sick, but it was a coup nonetheless. And as a result, he really made sure to divide uh, create this mistrust in society as much as possible. Not just in society, but also within the security agencies. And that's a serious problem for Tunisia as it moves forward to confront security challenges. There are four or five different counterterrorism units associated with the Ministry of Interior, uh, regular police, the National Guard, the Army, and the Presidential Office. Different forces for rapid deployment. All of these divides, all of this... Um, Agencies doing the same job was really an attempt to make sure that no one had enough force to overthrow him. Now it didn't help him that much in the end, but that divide is still a serious problem. It's also uh, quite evident in the military, where after General Ammar's um, resignation, you don't have a unified command in the military. You still have a separate chief of staff for the armed forces, for the navy, for the, um, Air Force without a unified joint chiefs as, as other countries do have. So that mistrust, that divide goes on all levels within Tunisia. And that's a serious problem. Now, what can we do as outsiders? Of course, it's very important to say here that we're not going to solve Tunisia's problems. Any imagination that someone sitting in Washington can solve the problem of Tunisia, that won't happen. But we can engage, and we can help in solving many of these problems. Number one regarding the, the security sector reform. I think a lot of focus has been on the political police. Um, The reality is, and I accept it as someone coming from the region, there will always be a political police in all of these Arab countries. The question is the size and the the size of abuses. But I'm much more interested in how can we reform the regular police work. The fact that for Tunisians, um, the regular police, the traffic police, is associated with very deep corruption. Not the the high-level corruption of the billions of dollars in deals of the government, but the daily corruption that they have to pay a bribe in order to get anything done. If you attempt to deal with that, then you're actually improving citizens' life, you're convincing them that the government cares, that the government is there to service them. It's fascinating, I'm sorry, just very quickly, it's fascinating that this has
0: not been addressed, since this is what many people, uh, many even casual observers, say was the uh, source of the, the Arab Spring itself in Tunisia. So the fact that they've not... they've not addressed this it's kind of it's
3: it's bizarre it's actually gone worse i mean the 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 um, the collapse of the political order in a sense has allowed the various security personnel to even demand more bribes and to put more pressure on the citizens to to receive them so dealing with that petty corruption makes the lives of people better i mean you 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 want to judge a society if there's a problem or not in that society? You go ask a young 20-year-old, 25-year-old, whether he wants to leave the country or not. And the overwhelming answer of Tunisian youth is, yes, we want out. Now, some are choosing the way out via the boats to Europe, and you're seeing that pressure of immigration, of course, much more from the Syria-Turkey side, but you are seeing those North African immigrants. But it's also in this desperation, this we want out of the country, is driving many people to join the Islamic State. I mean, people are committing suicide by those two means, either by the boat and drowning in the Mediterranean, or by joining the Islamic State. And that frustration in society needs to be addressed. Tunisia has an excellent educational system, but they don't uh, teach English that well. That is a serious problem in a globalized economy, but it's also a serious problem for them not being able to get jobs in the Gulf, for example. There are opportunities. They are much better educated than the Egyptians. They could get a lot of jobs in the Gulf, but these are closed for them because they lack the English language. If you provide a serious program of English language education in Tunisia, American cultural Center the British Council sometimes did some work on that. Then you're not actually you don't have to spend money in the economy. You are opening opportunities for the good educated Tunisians to work in other countries. Vocational training is a serious problem in the country. Everyone has studied philosophy and the humanities. People don't want to take the the, the, the jobs in the in the voc- kind of jobs that the economy would require. So there are so many. Detailed programs that an active U.S. can do in the country, and that would really make the lives of the people there better, and help push the country to become a model, to become a success story in a region that is a complete mess at the moment.
2: Sarah, did, did you want yeah, to Yeah, I pages? just want to. Um, so I'm going to. I'm going to push back a little bit here. Um, everything Sam pointed out is is, is true. There's. Room for a lot more U.S. engagement, um, but I just want to I just want to highlight two examples of um, U.S. efforts to um, address partly the security sector reform issue, and then this this business of mistrust. Um, now, the the first example is I, when I was there in um, February. This some of you may have may remember there. There was a, there was beginnings of some rumblings, uh, some protests, and even riots that started in the the South, in areas that were close to where the origin where the, the 2010 and 2011 uprising really gathered steam. And there was a real concern. And if I remember correctly, most of the protests had to do with um, with jobs, and and it was a lot of the same reasons. So people started getting very worried. Oh God! Are we going to see again? Because we don't have enough progress on the economic front. Uh, These people are right to be very angry that they're not seeing um, they're they're not seeing their conditions improve. In some cases, they've they've worsened. But the interesting thing happened. The interesting thing that happened was that at some point the riots stopped. At some point, it kind of died down. Um, And the concern was that well, if it spreads to the capital then okay we may be looking at a more serious um and so people were watching this very closely when when i was there um shortly after this this after it started to look like it was subsiding what i heard from among others um people at the uh the the french embassy interestingly enough um and others were telling me that and, and tunisians also more importantly were telling me that they Saw the police, the relatively mild response on the part of the police to these protests. Many of these police had benefited from training that was funded by yours truly. Um, in addition to French, and I think I think they've been getting assistance from the Germans on on this. But um, and they were crediting the restraint, the restraint on the part of law enforcement for the fact that these. Protests didn't get completely out of control. Now it relies on a bit of a counterfactual, I realize, but you know those sorts of programs are underway, and I, I think the, the U.S. and others have been trying. It's, it takes a long time to reform, a, a, you know, a, a, a set of security services, and it takes a long time to reform any institution in the best of circumstances. So you're doing this now in a country that has a civil war on one side. Uh, we don't really know what's going on on the other side, but it, it's not good what's been coming over from Algeria, um, and an economy in the dumps. So that's one example I want to cite. Um, we need more of that, but just to make the point that it is it is happening, even if even if on a small scale. The, the example I want to cite about um, U.S. efforts to get to some of this this business of mistrust, even if indirectly, because I think this this really is a big this is a big problem, but it's a it's a long term. Challenge. I mean, this—you can't change this overnight. So, there is a program that um, our um, National Democratic Institute has been funding that um, brings uh, that hires young Tunisian adults to work as staff persons for members of parliament. Okay, the Tunisian parliament is woefully under resourced. I mean, most of these people don't even have offices, um, let alone staff. So imagine like if our members of Congress decided to actually get something done, but they showed up and they didn't have any staff to help them to help them do it. Um, That's what the Tunisian members of parliament are facing. And the difference is that in in Tunisia, the the MPs really there is a there is a drive to get stuff done. They just don't have the resources for it. So this NDI program, the idea is that they bring in a crop of, of of young paid interns every year. Um, the 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 piece of this story I want to point out is that the first year of the program, the members of Tunisian Parliament who were who were asked, you know, would you like to to, to hire a staff person from this program? Well, uh, overwhelmingly, the members of Nahda, for example, were very reluctant to take on a, a staff person. Who might not have voted for Nahda? Who might be coming from, you know, a, a, a much more kind of secularist background? Maybe he or she voted for Nida. We can never be sure. Uh uh-uh. uh The same, vice versa. The, the the secular types in parliament were loath to uh, hire somebody on their staff who may have um, Islamist leanings or may have been sympathetic. Um, and so the very notion of uh, a, a a more or less dispassionate. Um, objective research assistant was just not really not familiar to them. The second year of the program, um, it was reported to me that those requests virtually disappeared. You didn't have um, Islamist MPs now requesting that their staff persons only come from uh, you know, parts of the population that might have voted for the party. And, and the same on the other side. I see that as look it's small it's but that's that's a step that's something and that's that's a program that we I think should kind of be proudly saying it, we've fluid. been funding
0: how did it happen that quickly I mean that's may that's desperation but that's okay
2: too I mean why not if, I mean was um, it
0: exchanges that people had in Parliament like oh this So what if this person voted for an Islamist or okay, or what's that? I
2: think it's the, I think there's a certain amount, I don't want this to sound patronizing, I think there's a certain amount of learning that goes on. I mean, you know, academics talk about democratic learning when... Um, when, when you are in, in, in an institutional setting like that. Um, and there are other examples of this in, 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 in parts of the Tunisian bureaucracy, which is notoriously, these agencies have not been communicating with one another. Again, this gets to the kind of divide and uh, prevent these agencies from, from building up any kind of threat to, to the former regime. But you have examples now of... Um, you know, Tunisian bureaucrats having meetings with their counterparts in other agencies for the first time, and this is this was totally unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. And now there's there starts to be some 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 growing trust um, um, among them. So these efforts need to be expanded. I you know I don't want to. Um, it's cert- yeah, far from sufficient, saying, yeah. but um, that there's stuff to build on.
0: Sam, did you want to? I'm, I'm I'm gonna <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna give you and uh, you and Eric a chance to say something quickly. I, I would like to open it up for uh, for questions with the with the remaining 20. Uh, 15 minutes we have when you guys are finished.
3: Okay, Um, I think Parliament is an interesting example. Um, We've seen um, women MPs from al-Nahda and from Lida'a Tunis cooperating, for example, on women issues. So there are areas where the fact that these people are dealing with each other often for the first time means better cooperation, communication, better perceptions of the other side. But I'm a bit worried that this accommodation, I mean, when the Nahda uh, last Congress, which saw this declaration of we're now Muslim Democrats, we're not Islamists, this was attended and there was a keynote speech by the president of the country, who's from Tunis. So there's a level of this cooperation working together. But how much is that tied to the fact of the accommodation between these two men, between Baji Qad and between Rashid Khanoushi? Uh, is that internalized in the political parties uh whatever we think of Ghanoushi's pragmatism moderation, call it whatever you want to call um are the younger members of Nahda now believing in that or is that just a step that's being taken and the same goes to nidat tunis i mean Ghanoushi's seventy five now if I'm not mistaken Sipsi is eighty nine or about ninety. These men will not be with us for a long time. There's a question of succession in both political groups, parties. Of course, in the Atunus, whether it survives in the first place is a question mark. But who will come after Beji Khalid Sipsi? Who will come after Rashid Ghanoushi? Will they continue or follow the same policies or not? I want to then say something about um, Morocco and, and about the, the region as a whole. Often in the Middle East in general, we approach it as a region that is... Um, Sunni, Arab, Muslim population. Uh, This is true as a majority of the population across the region, but it sometimes blinds us to all those religious and ethnic minorities that exist in those countries. Uh, If you look actually at this very rich mosaic of minorities, the Levant, the everywhere, And it's also true in North Africa. There is an Amazigh population in North Africa that is significant politically and that is often neglected in the way we approach North Africa or the Middle East in general. So the Amazigh movement in Morocco, they've achieved the language, the demand. The monarchy is um, is sponsoring the the Amazigh language institute, cultural heritage and all of that. Um, how does this move forward? Will the Amazigh movement there uh, develop any separatist views similar to the ones developed in Algeria or not? How does the political future of the Amazigh, I think, um continue in the future? Something very important for us to to think about. Because as with dealing with Iraq, with the Kurds, we were often blinded by this uh, thought of these countries as well, they're real entities. Many of these countries are not real entities. Uh, that's not true of Morocco, but it's true of, of Algeria, for example. So how does the country develop in the future? And, and these ethnic and religious divides are very important to, to keep in mind. Um, yeah, with that, uh, Eric. Thank you, Sam. Eric, would you like to? i just... So
1: I, I guess, add a little bit to what Sarah had said, and countries obviously uh, have, and people as political beings, have enormous capacity to reinvent themselves. And we're seeing informal new caucuses and associations begin to emerge in Tunisia, uh, partly because of the new demands on their politics and the fact that people need, I think, in order to, to, to form a common republic, uh, to, to get along with one another in some instances, outside powers have have some capacity to help seed those new relationships or to encourage them. And I think that we need to think uh, very clearly about uh, our programs in the region and what, if anything, we can do to help contribute to this. But I do think that in Tunisia, a lot of the reinvention that we have seen has been largely a function of Tunisian agency and Tunisians themselves. And... uh, I think we have a real interest in seeing that go forward. The region itself, you know, the Maghreb, to go back to the question that Lee had asked earlier on, has always belonged to a very separate history from the rest of the Middle East. I mean, they'll point out, for example, we were Christians to protest the Roman uh, uh, tyranny. Uh, We became Muslims to protest the Christian Roman tyranny. We, you know, uh, went our own way when the Umayyad tyranny presented itself. And now, you know, I think what you're seeing in the Maghreb in a lot of countries is a real desire to invent and, you know, to pursue a different future, which is uh, detached from the Middle East. And we've seen over the last 50 years, through the decline of various Arabist politics, as Sam mentioned, a reassertion of older identities. And the fact that countries like Morocco I think, to a lesser extent, uh, Algeria, um, uh, but countries like Morocco have been able to accommodate those identities. is a real sign that that they might be able to get ahead of uh, of the of, of of some of the political convulsions which are ripping up other societies and to really improve well, their. I politics is,
0: that the, is that the Algerians are uh, nothing like the Moroccans as far as anazig, right? I mean, it's still yeah. a very Controversial. When
1: you speak to
0: kabylians and, and Amazigh from
1: Algeria, you hear uh, very, very difficult tales of, of repression and, and minority subjugation. Yes, and, and I think that that is one of the factors that could contribute to long-term structural instability in Algeria. Uh, whereas in a Morocco, the king has made a, or the state has made a real effort to accommodate this new identity and to allow for a, a renaissance. Um, and doesn't and it's no long it's not
0: a political threat to the stability of the kingdom. So Um, I'm going to open it up to questions now. If you would wait for the microphone to come around and uh, then stand. Uh, The gentleman in the back here, if you just wait, there's a microphone that's going to be circulating. And if you would accept it, the microphone, and identify yourself. And uh, please, just one question, and keep it short after you identify yourself. Thanks. Okay, thanks for the great presentation. My name is Bill Mikhail. I teach at George Washington University. I have a question. Do you think that at any moment in history, the situation in any one of these countries, even including Mauritania, can deteriorate to the Syrian level? Uh, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. Uh,
2: can it, it sorry, did you ask to? Can they become Syria? Can it become sorry,
0: Syria? Could the situation in any one of these countries go down the way Syria went assembly would you like to i
3: mean did we expect Syria to happen before it happened the the ingredients are there the divides are there um, in a, an Egyptian diplomat um, uh, once was quoted as saying that uh, in the region there's only one nation-state, Egypt. The others are tribes with flags. It became a, a often quoted line in Washington. It's not a serious uh, line. It's very Egyptian-centric. Both Morocco and Tunisia have their own national identity developed. But there is a serious problem of national identity formation in Algeria, for example. So does that would that reach the level of tearing the country apart completely, Al Assyria? I think it's, again, it depends on the memory. How much do people remember about what happened in the 1990s? This is a country that every generation has paid a very heavy price in blood, both in the independence war with France, but then also during the civil war. So each generation has had to pay 100,000 plus or much more in terms of blood. Um, Does this stop? people from going the Syria route or not. That's, I think, a a, a question. Um, But even in in Tunisia, this lack of a national consensus. I mean, you ask Tunisians about what's the one person that, or what's the national figure of the country? And there's no unified answer. There's no one person in Tunisian history that unites the country together. Um, So this serious lack of a a national consensus, I think, is a problem that, uh, that is very harmful for these countries' future. I'm, however, a bit skeptical to say that they will become a Syria in the future. Um, Gentlemen, um, back here.
0: Let's wait for the mic. Thank you. Thanks. Thank
4: you, Bruce Foreman. I'm an independent financial consultant. I'm interested in the panel's observations about China's Activities in Africa. Uh, a casual ob- observer would say they are extensive, both on the economic development side, investment side. And could you comment
0: on um, the North African focus of today in particular? Thank you. Does anyone have any insight into Chinese? Eric, I know that you've worked on on Asia yeah. before, so I, 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 I mean my. I
1: mean, my focus on Chinese involvements has, has mostly been in Central
0: Asia and the core
1: of the Middle East. Um, but we do know that um, uh, from reports from throughout Africa, both sub-Saharan Africa and the north, particularly in Algeria, that the companies which are set up effectively operate as Chinese enclaves. Uh, they're very extractive. They don't contribute to wealth generation within those societies. And they tend to prosper, I think, in, in, um, in highly structured political economies, which are not free markets and open to wider uh, competition. Um, so there's a very extensive um, Chinese uh, state-owned enterprise presence in Algeria, for example. Um, But that's not contributing to Algeria's um, long-term economic uh, prosperity or health. Uh, I think it's actually detracting from it. Uh, Unfortunately, these companies do tend to work in uh, environments where they can find good deals. um, uh, And they can be – and they can create these sorts of extractive enterprises. And uh, it's – it's not a it's not a benign force. I think it actually helps to contribute to imbalances and to bad governance in countries like Algeria and in other
0: places. Thanks, Eric. The gentleman right here in the blue shirt, whoever. Oh, wow! Three microphones, fantastic.
4: Thank you. Um, my name is Zuhair Muzuz. I'm an analyst with Human Rights Watch. I agree with the. Um, opinion that north africa does not get much much attention from washington dc circles i think another problem is that because we're surrounded by a region that's modern chaos um we suffer from low expectations when it comes to democracy and human rights in this respect i took issue with mention of morocco as a responsible regime um or as an example for the region um because it contributes to countering violent extremism. Uh, just this past week, a couple of Moroccans were arrested for drinking in the street because it's Ramadan. The regime is trying to out the extremists in its midst by appearing more conservative. So my question to you, or any of you, is that don't you think that it's time to hold these countries, these regimes to higher human rights standards? Than just give them a pat on the back whenever they do something good let me
0: sarah would you like to start with that or okay, are you comfortable um, that
2: or? yeah so i think that the um thanks look i think i mean when it comes to morocco um th- this gets a little bit to what I, I i had started to say which is that it that there it's uneven there's no question i mean um We've seen, for example, I mean, you know this better than 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 than, than me. But um, the question of press freedom has gotten a lot of attention lately because there has been a regression. I mean, I think for a little while, the kingdom earlier in the uh, the first decade of this century had been moving, if at least incrementally, in in the right direction on this. And now I've seen we've I think we've seen a reversion um, on that front. Um, you know, our we. We, our, our, our human rights reports that that we put out are routinely uh, uh, quite critical of of Morocco. Actually, um, I mean, so I, I there's no question that um, that the country has a long way to go, and I don't think that we should be. I don't think we should be silent about that. I think that you know, part of being allies is is being able to be honest with each other, and we ought to be able to say. Listen, you're, um, we we are worried about X, Y, and Z. Um, I do think, though, that it's not a, it's not so much a question of, for me anyway, it's not so much a question of low expectations, um, or for that matter, comparing Morocco to Syria and then letting Morocco, you know, get off the hook for well, at least you're not, you know. Barrel bombing. I mean, obviously, you can't get that. That's not an argument for. Um, but for me, actually, it's a, it's a question of effectiveness of how do you get, how do you try and get a state who is, who is an ally for, for the time being? I mean, um, and that has demonstrated in some areas a willingness to reform, to be moving in, in, in the right, the right direction, at least as most of us would, would define that. How do you get a state to um, to move in the right direction in other areas like the human rights um, like the human rights realm and my concern sometimes with um, going to a country like Morocco and i guess it's a it's a question of how you do it okay i don't think this is psychology 101 if you go to someone and start out by telling him all the things you think are wrong he's going to tune out when you come around to what he what you think he's doing right now, this isn't this is I'm not suggesting that you don't tell him what you think he's doing wrong. But let's be smart about how we do it. Let's be smart about how we frame this. And that is going to have to mean also with respect, we can't be sloppy in our human rights reporting on these countries. We, there's no margin for error here on our part. Unfortunately, it's it's a it's a crummy under the bargain, but I think that's we can't mess up on this because it's always going to be too easy to come back to us and say you got this story wrong, you got this story wrong, and so your credibility is just shot. So I, I think it's more a question of how you strategically make the case for improvements in human rights. You don't you don't drop the ball on it, absolutely not. So I I, I hope I didn't suggest that in my remarks earlier, but
0: Sam, I'm going to ask you to follow. I just want to say something in, in the uh, in. in uh, Maybe transition. I mean, my understanding is that the reason that the um, Moroccans cut off security cooperation with uh, with the French was because when the French tried to arrest uh, Moroccan uh, security official, which seems to which seems to me to have misplayed the situation terribly, um, because then when the French again needed the security cooperation of Morocco, the French said, "Okay, forget it, never mind." So I wholeheartedly endorse uh, Sarah's approach of like, how do we talk to people about our concerns? Because if we approach it like this, and if we have to walk it back like that, we're going to look even more like hypocrites. Why does this? Why does it make it okay to just threaten to throw a guy into jail when we're going to have to walk it back? So, Sam, if you wanted to, a...
3: the the monarchy in Morocco has managed to um, stay ahead of the curve. They <coughs> they. Um, started this reform process, whatever we want to call it, that has managed to stop many of the negative impact of the Arab Spring from happening there. Um, whether it was um, the co-option of the Amazigh movement by recognizing the language, the cultural center, whether it was the um, dealing with the years of the past, Sanawatu Rasals and how the, the heritage of what happened under the uh, King Hassan II is, is dealt with. All of these positive steps that have been taken often blind us to the negative aspects of co-option. Um, both in blinding us to, yes, there are still many problems there, but as well as the negatives of the, the, including all the opposition parties, dividing them and including them in government means that the only non-status quo party or power is the Islamic State and the Ladlou al-Hassan, both very problematic from a U.S. point of view. So the, the, there have been negative aspects of this I don't want to, what to, should we call it, slow reform or uh, palace-managed reform that the Moroccans have done. Morocco has serious problems, still every country does, but Morocco does have serious problems in human rights, in religious freedom issues regarding to conversion. There are many issues that are there, and they should be raised um, in the conversation between the U.S. and Morocco. One thing I think that's... um should be utilized more is the fact that Morocco deeply cares, especially the monarchy, about its image abroad. They deeply care about how the West, the French press, is covering them, the, how the king is portrayed there. Using that weakness, whatever it is, to to convince Morocco to deal with its problem is, I think, something that the U.S. government should focus more on. Eric, did
1: you want to... I I think this gentleman was taking issue or exception with a comment that I made, not what Sarah had said. I I said that human security flows from responsible politics. And I think in Morocco you have, um, in the new social contract... Evidence of real positive political trends with which the United States should look to build a constructive alliance with. Um, Because uh, human rights, as we all know, and your reporting is very good and accurate, but they don't materialize out of thin air. They actually require politics and institutions to support. What's significant about Morocco and the new social contract is that they have built new institutions, which are in a sense designed to establish a beachhead um, uh, against say, the fight in corruption, in restraining uh, excessive use of force in the police, for example. And these institutions are meant to help educate the next generation of Moroccans. Um, And they're asking for our help. They're asking for our help. Um, uh, Those institutions, it's very difficult to find a parallel set of institutions in other countries across the Middle East right now. And so I think when you think more strategically, as Sarah said, about how to engage countries like Morocco, uh, there are actual partners on the ground with which we can work. And most Moroccans will tell you that the new social contract, uh, a lot of Moroccans will tell you that the new social contract probably has about 10 or 15 years, and then there'll be a need to invent a new one. And the question is, well, what kind of society, what kind of politics are we going to have in the next 10 to 15 years? And the Moroccans are looking for partners. Uh, including the United States, probably especially the United States, to work with, to achieve the goals that that, that they want for themselves. And
0: and we should be there. Thanks. Um, We're going to have time for one more question, the woman in the blue blouse here. Uh, And again, stand up and identify yourself, and you're going to need to make it especially short.
2: Okay. Uh, My name is Saida Zarjeda, a Tunisian citizen, let's say. Um, I I would like to hear from – first, thank you, it was very nice. Um, I'd like to hear from any of you if what what kind of, um, how do you see these changes uh, that are happening in the region in the perspective of the technological revolution that is happening globally? Um, with its economic imp- changes, uh, ethical changes, uh, belief changes, uh, political changes, etc., because we are living in the—that's
0: a, a super huge question. Okay, and we're not going to have time. Yeah, we're not going to have time to address to address the huge universe that that. Uh, sketches, but why don't we start... How about uh, I'll I'll give each of you a paragraph to address that. Sam, why don't you Uh. start? I'd love – you can write an essay on it later, Anyone but, else from but to right start. now. That's what I
1: think of. I mean, I'll start. And, and, I mean, Social media, for example, uh, is one of the technological changes which obviously drove the, the uprisings and state collapses of 2011, and we're continuing to see the fallout. There's no doubt that social media empowers <laughs> new forms of politics, new forms of community. I'm not sure it's the kind of community, however, which uh, societies will need to be able to build up the internal defenses to withstand the unraveling that we're seeing in other uh, across the region. While social media empowers, um, it also tends to uproot people from their communities and from the important work of building institutions and uh, uh, minding their local politics and making sure that their local politics stay on track, and that the real... You know, this unraveling, it, it, it sort of operates like a real a terrifying flood until it hits a wall. And in some cases, that, that's an army or a police force. But they haven't been entirely effect, effective, number one. And number two, they're not very good at refuting the ideas which are driving the unraveling across the region where you've actually seen um uh polities that have been able to withstand um uh this unraveling uh and predatory groups like ISIS it's polities which which have a deep sense of who they are politically and as a community um and uh social media doesn't always uh, i think it tends to undermine uh communities more than it actually uh, uh empowers them frankly uh yeah. so it's not it's not a straightforward plus for for the region
0: and for the politics of the region Sarah, I'm going to ask you if you'd like to. Uh...
2: Okay. Well, I'm not. I. So you said technological change, just just generally. Okay.
0: Uh... <laughs> I think we're all. A this is a great subject. To... Right now, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, that's going to be another panel, the robots uh, in the region. Right.
1: Okay,
2: so I'm going to... Robots,
0: are, yeah. That'll be fun.
2: <laughs> I'm going to not answer your specific question, <laughs> but because I, I can't... I mean, it's it's a great question, um, but it's a, it's worthy of a dissertation, and I, I uh-huh. need a lot more time to think about it. But, um, but I think that I, if I can just extract maybe from it a bit more of a general... Point, which is, um, and it's not really unique to this region, um, you know. Which is the question of how how these countries um, uh, adjust to just change, kind of generally. So technological change, to take that example, um, you know, it seems to me you can think about that on in at least two dimensions. One is the question of access. I mean, do, do these populations have access to, you know, basically? well, things that ought to be basic now, like the internet and just sort of becoming part of the global community, as annoying as that phrase is, through technology. Um, And I think the other dimension really has to do with education. I mean, one thing that um, I think these countries were struggling with before the Arab Spring and they will be struggling with well after is trying to um, um, reform their education systems um so that they can really be um producing citizens who are capable of engaging with um people in other countries through the use of this technology. And that challenge isn't going away. Um and uh I it would be nice to see the US um and and, and I suppose the Europeans also um continue to help these countries, at least in those two, two dimensions.
0: Sam, would you like to...
3: Yeah, um, one of the most fascinating things about this social media, more connectivity, is, of course, the connection between the diaspora communities and the, their countries back home. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, today, as an Egyptian living in America, I, I read Egyptian newspapers on the Internet any um, anytime I want. Uh, communication with people back home is obviously much easier following the news. And we've always thought about the impact of the ideas from back home on the diaspora communities when we talk about the North African immigrants in France, in Belgium, in these countries. I think there's something to be thought about in the future about the, the impact of the reverse impact of what those communities, diaspora communities, are bringing back home or sending back home. Not just money, but also ideas and so on, and how this can be used to, to push these countries for a better future. I mean, um, obviously, uh, North African, uh, diasporas are more, f- um, in the in europe in france and spain in uh, holland belgium uh, but looking much broader um, there are over half a million egyptians here in the united states what is the u.s doing to use these to impact the future of egypt that's uh, i think we're doing much less in on working on these issues
0: Interesting. i'll just say i'll just say one thing because this is an issue that concerns me greatly and i've always seen democracy as a kind of technology Well, right, it's a political technology. And what these things depend on, and I very much agree with Eric, it's technology, in a sense, it's, it's neutral. It depends on what the culture, society itself, is going to use these things for. So technology, under no circumstances, is a positive good in itself. And there has to be, I believe, some organic connection between any technology and society or culture that uses it. And with that pretentious statement, I'm going to thank you all very much for, for coming and see you soon.